Hi everyone, good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program broadcast. My name is Dr. Brad Reedy. Today is Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. For those that might be new to this format, this is an open question and answer. We do this also for family and friends of Evoke. So if you have a sibling that's at home or you have grandparents, aunts, uncles, family, friends who want to become a part of the process and learn, you're welcome to share your, your invitation and password for these, these events. You can also ask questions about family and friends, and also you can ask questions that they're asking you for and on behalf of them. And so I'll give my best answer to the question, and you can kind of compare that with what you're thinking you would tell them. So we always get to the pre-submitted questions first. So any questions that are left over from the last broadcast or any questions that are submitted by email, um, through email, using the email webinar at, at evoketherapy.com are the ones that we get to first. So we have a few of those left over. Please submit questions at any time, and we'll be happy to answer them in the order that they receive. This first one is a little bit long, so I'm going to read along with you. My 17-year-old son attended Evoke when he was 15, then transitioned to two different therapeutic boarding schools, kicked out of the first one. He came home in November of 2020. We set a boundary that he needed to stay drug-free. We have repeatedly told him that we love him and will support him in any way if he would like to, if he is clean and wants to get help getting clean. We accept that he socially drank some alcohol with his peers outside of our home, and he did not expect to be perfect and did not expect him to be perfect. We set a boundary with our two other young adult children at, at home as well. Right before our son was set to come home from therapeutic boarding school, we discovered our daughter, 21 was smoking a lot of pot. We told her our boundary and she did not stop and we told her she must find another place to live. We cannot bring our son home to a home where that was permitted. Going on. Our youngest son, home from therapy to boarding school for four months, moved out in April and is now living with that sister. He works occasionally, but we hear he's involved in things that aren't good for him. We communicate occasionally. The last time I texted him, he was horribly disrespectful to me and I have not responded since. I feel so defeated with two of my three kids going down this path. I've been to counseling, still listen to your podcasts, as well as continue to educate myself on addiction while reading books and listening to podcasts. I also went to Al-Anon for the close to two years and found another terrific support group for parents of children with addiction. In addition, I saw a doctor who put me on antidepressants. I'm struggling at a new low. I'm struggling at a new low and looking for any advice possible for another direction to travel. Thank you for helping me with all I have learned. You've guided me to continue to learn and take care of myself. You know, when somebody shares a question like this and, and with it, there's so much work that you've already done. I think the most important thing for me is just, just to offer you empathy. I was, I was talking about this or thinking about this recently. I haven't told this story in a while, but some of you may know that I have multiple sclerosis. It's, it's my, my symptoms are very, very small, very limited. They, they don't really, um, they don't show up that you would, you would notice that I have MS unless I told you about it. I was diagnosed with it back in 2015. And at the time that I was diagnosed, I was leaving the hospital. Just having received the news that I had MS, my wife was in a different car because we'd come from different places in separate cars. And as I was driving, I was thinking about who I wanted to call and share this with and, and talk to. I just spent the time with my wife, so it wasn't her. And I thought about it for a few minutes, and, I, and I've told the story where I didn't call my best friend, my closest friend, or 
somebody that was even my in my very closest circle. But I called another friend who had two family members with, with multiple sclerosis. His name is Tyler. And when I reached Tyler and, and through tears, I told him that I had MS. Um, this 20 at the time, I think he was probably 25 years old. This 25 year old said to me um, simply, Brad, you're not alone and you will never be alone. I'll always be there for you. And you can always talk to me about it. And I was just amazed at the wisdom of his response. And I've thought about that, of course, dozens of times since then. And one of the things I've, I've come to realize is that there are situations that we can't change. My illness is incurable. At this point, it's, it's fairly minimally um, invasive and impactful in my life, but it could get worse. Um, and there's nothing that I can do about that in terms of medicines or, or cures or, or therapies. Um, and so what I, what I need in that unsolvable problem is I need company. I need to be with other people. I need to be with people who understand me, who can listen, who don't try to talk me out of it or, or fix any kind of emotion relative to that. And, and while that's a very different circumstance than what you're describing with two out of three of your children, that's really all I can offer you at this point because you've tried setting clear boundaries. It sounds like you've done and are doing your own work. And there are situations in our life that, that we really can't change. You know, the one thing that I think about with parents when they try everything that they can and, and do their own work to help their children and their children are still struggling and, and battling with mental illness and addictions. Part of what I, I, I think about with them is that it's really vital for them to find people, to find a therapist who can sit with them in their unsolvable problems. It's really important that you, you're able to talk to people that, that don't judge you um, and that understand. Ultimately, I, I tell these parents, even though you've made mistakes, and we all have, and even though we've contributed to our children's big T sometimes and small T trauma, which we all have as parents, it doesn't mean that your life is over. It doesn't mean that you should be sentenced to some kind of life in prison or some kind of, you know, that we could that we should punish you for that. It's part of being human. And it really moves from being your you know, your accountability, your responsibility to being your child's responsibility. Every parent dents their children. And those dents and issues are worthy of exploration, but ultimately they become the child's responsibility. I think one other point in here um, is to remind all of you, and this goes for adolescents as well as young adults or, or older adults, it's none of your business whether or not somebody else is an alcoholic or an addict. We think we need that diagnosis to justify the boundaries that we set. And it's simply not true. We, we learn in Al-Anon and other support groups, which teach us to focus on ourselves, even when we're in a relationship with somebody who's demonstrating really horrible or, 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 or sick or addictive behaviors, we learn that, that their issues are not our responsibility. Even with adolescents and younger children, you don't have to diagnose your 16-year-old 
as an addict to be able to set boundaries around substance use in your family. But because, and I visit this over and over again, because we grew up in homes where the, the thing was about being right, we think we need some professional or some diagnostic tool to confirm our beliefs that the child or, or the adult is struggling from a, a diagnosable condition and that that diagnosis then gives us permission to say, I can't tolerate it in, in my home. And the reason I tell that, share that idea, that concept with somebody who's already set the boundaries is you can still have a relationship with them. You know, your children who are smoking pot and doing alcohol, you can still have a relationship with them. If you've decided that you can't have them in your home, you get to decide that. But that doesn't mean that you can't go out to dinner, that you can't have fun, that you can't relate. They might stonewall you. They might punish you and withdraw their affection to put you in your place, but you can't control that either. So find people that can support you. Find people where you're not alone. Find a way to forgive yourself for mistakes, to, to take the burden off of you to get get it right or be perfect so that your children can turn out well. Remember this, I have seen people who suffer from codependency, who don't have any children in treatment. And those children probably wouldn't qualify for our program. I've seen people with, with greater and lesser codependency with, with children who have greater and lesser needs. So your issues aren't a direct cause and effect on your child. Yes, in this work that we do, we recognize the impact of our behavior. We recognize the ripple effects of our behavior, but we try to keep it out of a, a simple cause and effect relationship. So find people that can support you. Find some way to forgive yourself. Find some community to belong to. Don't worry about diagnosing your children's problems and, and thinking that you know what they need to do. As in, my child needs to not smoke marijuana or my child needs to not drink. That doesn't have to be true. You don't need to know that. In fact, in, in, in spiritual, in a spiritual sense, it's none of your business. And that goes for all of you. It's none of your business in terms of deciding if somebody else is an addict or an alcoholic or bipolar or borderline. So many people over the years come to me with these diagnoses, not just the substance use issues, but these other diagnoses, again, as this kind of uh, this thing that they can hang their hat on that justifies the pain or the suffering that they've gone through or, or that justifies the decisions and the boundaries that they need to set. But the fact of the matter, any good therapist, any good friend, any good support person would support you without those diagnoses. You don't have to be right. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to hang your hat on that. So I, I hope that's helpful. And, 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 and from one father to another parent, I just send my love and tell you that there are things in life and, and especially with our children that um, are outside of our control to fix and to solve. And so that's left, that leaves us with our responsibility to be responsible for our own serenity and peace. And for sure, we're going to go through depression, you know, periods of depression and anxiety when the people that we love are struggling at the level that you're describing. So thank you for that. Somebody writes, Dr. Reedy, in your podcast with Sanford Shapiro, he explained that his older stepson, after some inpatient therapy, 
had a normal, healthy life that he enjoyed. My questions are, why did that end? Does that mean that he is capable of a long-term healthy life? Where does happy come from into that? I have a 41-year-old son who is troubled, unhappy, angry, stuck, and I wonder if I am enabling and perpetuating that. You know, you're always welcome to, to email Sanford. You can email me and I can forward it on to him. Um, if it's, I don't know if his email is on our website, if we give that out publicly, but I know that Sanford would be interested in, in giving you his, his opinion and talking to you about that. Um, from what I can surmise from Sanford's story is that there was something in there that was organic, that was biological. There was something that, that, that presented itself that was apparently beyond anybody, including the individual's ability to kind of um, fight against it or, or to overcome it, and that he suffers from fairly significant mental illness. My therapist said to me years ago, and I, I have no idea what I was talking about at the time, but she explained to me that some cars can only go 55 miles an hour. And she was relating that to probably, I don't know if it was a client or a family member of mine who I was hoping to help, where I, I had tried various approaches to try to help that person. And he, she reminded me that sometimes people can't be helped. And, and that is, as a person who, who works in the mental health field, who is incredibly optimistic and who always thinks that there can be a difference, a change, I'm always willing to try something, that's a really hard pill to swallow. But the fact of the matter is, it's true. I had a therapist that I was supervising who seemed to be up against that with one of his clients. And he was asking me, after going through a series and a long explanation of the case and a series of interventions and approaches that he had tried that, that I thought were great, great ideas, you know, he said to me, what can I do with this person who still wants to come to therapy? And I said, I suppose in the meantime, you can just love him. Just be present with him and love him and give him an experience of, of not being alone. And that's kind of the last thing that we can do for the people on earth, the people that we care about. You know, there are people that are homeless, that are suffering from thought disorders and schizophrenia and all kinds of issues that we're, we're probably not going to make a, a, a real profound change in their ability to function. We can medicate them some so that they can be uh, so they so they're not a danger to themselves and others. We we at, at times can provide them housing if they're able to organize themselves well enough to take advantage of those resources. But sometimes all you you're left to do is to to love people. I haven't said this in a while, but there's a there's a it reminds me of these first two questions. There's a um a TED talk by Johan Hari entitled "All We." Th thought we knew about addiction is wrong, I think is the name of it. All we think about, everything we think about addiction is wrong. Sometimes if you, I just, because one of the analogies he uses or one of the metaphors he uses is, is uh, some rat studies and there's this story about a rat park. So if you Google rat park and Johan Har, you can find it. It's a 15 minute broadcast that really is a gripping broadcast about one man's journey um, to, to figure out how to be in relationship with the people in his family that are suffering from seemingly incurable mental illness and addiction. And while it doesn't tell you what to do, it gives you 
a glimpse into the kinds of, of things that I'm talking about. You know, ultimately, we don't set these boundaries with our children. We don't set boundaries with others to, to try and fix them or change them. And if any of you are doing that, I, I would encourage you to, to relook at your codependency and your attachment style. But we set these boundaries for self-care, to clear our own conscience, to manage our own anxiety, our own depression, our own mood, our own uh, sense of well-being. That's why we do it. Oftentimes, those boundaries change other people, but, but I, I cannot be too emphatic when I say this. Your healthy boundaries will not necessarily fix anybody else. And you don't know what somebody's path should look like. You don't know somebody else's truth, even your child's. Your job, your responsibility, your project is to work on your serenity, to work on your healthy boundaries, to work on your relationship issues, your trauma, your attachment styles, your family of origin, how you love, how you show up. Those are your responsibilities. Those improvements or that focus does tend to have positive impacts on the people that surround us, but they don't cure other people. There's no guarantee. There's no secret out there, folks, for all of you. There's no secret out there that is a guaranteed fix for your children. And I think one of the most unkind and ignorant things that's often taught in the therapeutic field or in the self-help industry is the implication that if you get it right, push the right buttons, find the, the silver bullet, flip all the right switches in just the right way at just the right time that you can guarantee a fix in somebody else's life. And that's not true. And in fact, the idea that you can fix somebody else is the problem. That's why when I'm teaching and I talk about what, what boundaries you, you set with your spouses, with with your friends, with your, your children, with, with coworkers, wherever it is, that when I talk about setting those boundaries, I don't talk about it in terms of how it's going to change other people. I talk about it in terms of the, 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 the peace, the serenity that it provides to you, the sense of well-being, the, the preservation of, of a, a valuable energy that you need to be able to, to to be able to do what you need to do. So yeah, those those are my thoughts on those two questions. Feel free to reach out to Sanford. Like I said, through me, you can actually email webinar at, at evoketherapy.com and we're happy to pass it on and I'm sure Sanford will respond or you can reach out to me and I can pass it on to him. The next question it writes, do you have any suggestions for responding to a younger child, six-year-old, saying you're the worst mom? <laughs> Great question. Uh, before I answer this question, I want to go back to a thought that I didn't finish. So I'll go back to this one in just a second. Um, it's it when you're when you're setting boundaries, when you're get healthier, when you're getting healthier. You know how I pay so much attention to why you do it and not what you do. That that the motivation or the thought behind the behavior is in many ways more important than the actual behavior. You can kick a child out of the house or let them stay. And either one of those can be appropriate responses based on your, your awareness of yourself and your relationship with the child 
and their issues. So don't let anybody tell you that there's an external formula to fix people or to fix kids. And the reason that I spend so much time talking about what's beneath it, what's the drive, what, what's, what's causing our behaviors, our boundaries, our responses, our shifts, is because if you do it from a place of I can fix you, you can't get it right. Period. And if you do it from a place of this is my truth, this is my, what, what feels right to me, what I need to do to be okay, what I feel good about, you can't get it wrong. If it comes from fear, judgment, anger, anxiety, control, you can't get it right. If it comes from love, authenticity, acceptance, and courage, you won't get it wrong. So I had that third earlier from the last question. I didn't finish it. Back to this next question. Any suggestions for a six-year-old who says you're the worst mom? I mean, the energy, the energy is kind of to ignore it. You can ignore it. You can agree with them. The point is, it's just their way of saying I'm angry at you. Any response, any defense, any argument is going to probably feel dismissive. You know, the energy is kind of like, I get it. I'm sorry, I hear you. Not saying anything can be very appropriate if it's if it's that energy that I just described, but there's nothing broken there, really. You know, when a child thinks you're the worst parent, nothing's broken. They're just upset, angry, and, and dysregulated. They're not communicating assertively, perhaps. But those small brushstrokes won't make a big difference. Just let it be true. You know, I said this to our therapist last week in training. The most important letter that we have in our program, and I would argue that if we could only have one assignment, it would be this. And I would argue that if there were only one assignment in psychotherapy, it would be this assignment. The most important assignment is the impact letter that they write to you. Telling you how you hurt them, how they're angry at you, how they're frustrated, whatever it is, at you, how your behavior impacted them. That's the escape route for mental illness is to talk about the pain and it'll be messy and you won't agree with it all and you won't agree on the specifics of their explanation. But if we can create a, an opportunity for children to express anger and for parents to find a way to hold it, to listen to it, to allow it, not to, not to repress your, your hurt or your frustration to the point that you end up developing symptoms, but get to a place of awareness where it doesn't even really hurt you. It's not even about you. It's about them. If we can get families to that place, we can do so much healing in relationships and in families. So, so for those of you that are listening, who, who are parents, and it applies to other relationships too, if you have the energy and the ability to listen to somebody, to deeply hear somebody, their pain, their frustration, their anger, their disappointment, their sadness, their hurt. If you can listen to that, you become a part of the solution. And I tell my therapist, that's more important than the letter that the parents write to the child. 
talking about why they sent them. That's more important than the child writing their own letter about their own awareness and their own accountability about their, their, their horrible decisions. Talking to people about what they're upset about. That's where the symptoms come from, is from these unexpressed, unwelcomed feelings. So if you're a parent or a spouse and you have the ability, if you force it because you're hearing me tell, tell you that you should do it, it'll backfire on you. But if you have the wherewithal, the energy, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, to ask the person that you're in conflict with or the person who's suffering, talk to me about how I hurt you. Talk to me about your anger, specifically to me. Talk to me about the sad, the pain, the loss, whatever it is, the frustration. And I will listen. You become part of the solution. This goes back to what I think is one of the most important broadcasts that I've done, episode 309, changing notions of what it means to be a good parent and talking about this idea of containing. Somebody writes, can you address the child threatening to kill themselves because he can't cope with the boundary we've set? He would say he's not manipulating us, but that is honestly how he feels. He literally texted me this today while he was at school. He doesn't seem to accept our boundary. How do you know if it is because we are forecasting our wavering versus he is suffering immensely? I believe both are true because I'm so afraid to hold the boundary for fear that he will fall through on his threat. Already had two suicide attempts and I know it leaks out. Um, a few years ago, four or five years ago, a friend of mine who actually worked with, with that I worked with for many years, um, killed himself. He was a therapist. He wasn't working with us for us at the time, but he had for several years prior. And uh, he called me on, on Sunday morning, on uh, the morning that he took his life. And it was some minutes after that, that he left the message at six o'clock in the morning that he took his own life. I didn't, he didn't threaten it. I, I didn't respond to it. It was, it was um, actually Easter Sunday and I had family visiting. So I had a lot going on for me that morning and I was gonna get to it later. I talked to him several times that week about some other things. And then I found out, uh, Sometime in the afternoon, somewhere between 12 and 2, I got a message that, that my friend Dave, my, my colleague Dave, had, had taken his life. Fast forward a few weeks, I was at a conference, uh, a training, uh, working on psychodrama. And in some of the conferences that I go to, specifically this, this psychodrama conference, some of the demonstrations and some of the works and the, the trainings involve people doing a little bit of their own work if they're willing to be transparent. So there was a piece where that I volunteered for. And I was talking to Dave, who had, this is my friend, who had taken his life. And the, um, the, the facilitator said to me, she suggested the possibility that I apologize to Dave, that I didn't take the phone call or that I couldn't have been there, there for him or, or hadn't done more, that maybe I was carrying around some burden or some guilt. And very clearly and very simply, I, I turned to her and I said, that's just not the case for me. I had talked to David over the course of my life many times and encouraged him to get help and to go to therapy and and and, and listened a lot, you know, hours of phone calls over, over years. I told him at certain times, you know, years prior, I, I can't be your therapist, Dave. I, I can only be your friend and there is something different. And he thought that he had all of the education that he needed 
and that, that therapy he imagined couldn't do, couldn't make a difference. I always think that's interesting when therapists think that therapy doesn't help. It, it kind of gives me a glimpse into their, their lack of awareness or education about what therapy is and what it does and how it works. But at any rate, I told this woman, this facilitator, that I didn't feel guilty about David's suicide and my lack of response that morning. The reason I tell you this story because you can only do what you can do. I, 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 prob- I, I might have been able to stop David from killing himself that day. But I could not make that my responsibility. I could not take that on in my life. And at some point, he was going to be how he was going to be responsible. Of course, it's different when it's your own child. But at some point, if holding a boundary with your child is going to result in them threatening or harming themselves, you can't be held hostage by that. If you tried, you know, getting him into a hospital, getting him treatment, it sounds like from your question, you've already tried that. You've already done all that you know to do. Ultimately, and this has to be, this has to be in your own mind. Ultimately, you have to accept the fact that you can't control what he does and that you can't be on the hook for that. When I've dealt with parents, when I've worked with parents, known parents who have lost children to suicide, they've made peace with the fact that they've tried everything. I've had parents that have had children that that are threatening, similar to the way that your son is threatening, and they've made peace of it and been able to let go. I can't tell you what to do. And as a parent, parent to parent, I imagine if I was you, I would do everything that I that I could to try to help. But at the end of the day, his life is his responsibility and you can't stop it. And if you're going to be abused, because that's really what it is, right? Regardless of whether it's true or not, but if you're going to be abused and held hostage by this threat when you simply hold a boundary, it's hopeless. I, I say to children sometimes when they when they promise dire results if their parents hold boundaries in our program i say to them well what are your parents supposed to do capitulate every time you threaten it's it's kind of like i've compared it to like being in a relationship with somebody sexually and threatening threatening them unless they um have sex with you unless they do what you want to do threaten to hurt them, yourself, maybe a family member? Are you just supposed to give in and give them what they want? I don't know that that's a life that's worth living for you. So do all that you can. I don't know what you should do. I don't have the perfect answer. But coming to terms with the fact that ultimately it's his responsibility and you can't keep him alive. And if you have to capitulate, you're doomed. So getting him into treatment. But at some point, if this continues, you're going to have to let go. And he's going to have to figure it out. But no other human being, including me, can tell you what to do. Nobody can. Because living with the loss of a child is is too great of a burden, too much for anybody else to take, take responsibility for, to take on their shoulders. It'll be something you have to sort out yourself. Find people to support you. Find people that have had the same experience and figure uh, learn from them how they were able to get clear of this nearly impossible dilemma that you shared.
Somebody writes, how can I best support my child around the death of the other parent? Talk and invite them. Remember this with trauma. A core element of trauma is the lack of control. When somebody experiences trauma, always present in the trauma is a lack of control. So when we try to help people who have experienced trauma, death of a parent, loss of a loved one, sexual abuse, physical abuse, bullying, whatever it is, even the sibling at home, the non-identified patient sibling, if we take over their recovery, if we force them to do the thing that we think or that we believe that they need to do to heal, we risk re-abusing them. We replicate that, that loss of control. So talk about it, invite, offer therapy, um, but don't force. Don't assume you know their process. One of the greatest challenges in grief work they teach you in school is that in families, everybody's grieving differently in a different person and in a different way. So it's so difficult for them to be there for each other because they superimpose their own process on each other. So talk about it. See if they're willing to talk about it. Offer them support, offer them support, but don't take it over. And again, ultimately, in a, in a, in a kind of a big picture, in the long game, it's going to be theirs to sort out. It's, it's your children's responsibility to sort out their relationship with everybody else in their life. You can have something to do with them sorting it out with you if you want to, if you want to be a part of the solution. But everybody else, they're going to have to figure that out themselves. I don't mean that in a cold, dismissive way. I just mean you can't do it for them. You can offer. You can lightly make suggestions. Be willing to drop your suggestions or ideas if they're, they're defended against that, if they reject that. Hold it loosely is the phrase that I, I talk about. And don't try, to, don't try to overtake them. Somebody writes, I recently read The Body, the Body Keeps the Score. And it was a very heavy read. Great book about trauma and modalities to treat it. Can you talk about somatic therapy? And do you think it's effective in treating trauma, for treating trauma? Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't practice somatic therapy. I, I, I'm not trained in somatic therapy. We have therapists that are trained in it. Um, any way in is effective. Some people feel it in their body first. The, the very first client in psychotherapy ever of all time had somatic symptoms. Sigmund Freud was called in to help treat these people with, with hysteria, with, 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 with paralysis. And he found after talking and listening to them over a great deal of time that they, their symptoms went away physically. In other words, their physical symptoms or paralysis were holding their trauma and their pain. And by accident, Freud figured out by having them talk about and tell their trauma story, the paralysis or the physical symptom went away. I've sat in sessions with therapists that are trained in somatic therapy, and I've seen them be able to access kids that I wasn't as effective accessing orally. So yes, any approach is worthwhile. EMDR, brain spotting, somatic therapy, um, 
I, I, I don't think it's, it's even though I have my approach and it's attachment based and it's traditionally talk therapy, I don't feel like I have the corner on healing, anything that will work for you. Psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is becoming more and more common. It won't be very long before that's mainstream using MDMA. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's the, the drug that's in um, ecstasy. Using psychedelic mushrooms, LSD, ketamine. That's a large cat tranquil, tranquilizer that also has psychedelic properties to it. That's a very common, I've had very conservative people try those modalities. People that don't use any substances in their lives recreationally use those approaches and, and find healing. So anything that works is work. That's the beauty of science is if something new comes along, we have to change our opinion. I love what the Dalai Lama said when he said, if science proves something wrong in Buddhism, then Buddhism has to change. I think that's a beautiful thought, a beautiful idea, because we're always growing. Of course, we're going to know things that we don't know in 20 years that we have no idea about today. And we know things today that we didn't know 10, 20, 30 years ago. Of course. So I think somatic is a very valid way. And I know lots of people on both ends of it, both of the, the treatment provider end and the client end who will tell you that it made a big difference in their life. So if you feel stuck, give it a try. I tell my clients the same thing when they ask about these approaches. Next question. Our son is 15 and stayed at Evoke for three months. He's been at a therapeutic boarding school for seven months. We have been finding ourselves doing our work, seeing, we seeing therapists weekly, and have a scaffold for support. We are ready for him to come home in December. The therapeutic boarding school says he's not ready. We are ready. We have discussed the why with our home therapist. He feels we are on the right track. Does our opinion trump... TBS, we know no one who knows this answer. We know no one knows this answer. We just want to make sure that we aren't forgetting something to think about. Sorry, I have an itch in my nose. Yeah, your, 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 your opinion trumps everybody. Your opinion as the parent making the decision trumps me. Trumps every therapist. So yes, you get to do what you get to do. If you're if you're honestly exploring, and you know, I think it's appropriate at certain points. I've said this to my clients, and I teach this to our therapists. If I have an opinion uh, about a direction that we can go with with your child, and you disagree with me, at some point I'll say to you, just tell me if you still want to hear my opinion, or if we need to change gears, I got to get behind you. You guys, our children are, are too important for us to abdicate that ultimate responsibility that is ours. Now, yes, I, I think it's important to listen to professionals, to look at yourself, to ask yourself difficult questions, to ask your therapist difficult questions. But if you're ready to take them home and, and not think in terms of pass or fail, not think in terms of he or she is fixed, but you're ready to try it, not only do you get to decide legally, but ethically, it's it's actually inappropriate for you to be bullied against your own instincts. Again, if you're my client, if I'm the therapeutic boarding school therapist or your educational consultant or even your wilderness therapist, I will talk to you if I see something missing, a thought process. If I see that you're doing it out of guilt, 
or that you think you can fix him by bringing him home and, and showing him or her that you love them. If you're doing it from a place of, um, you know, that you think all the problems have gone away and now we're just looking for success. If you're ready to embrace the, the messy, difficult, zigzag human journey with your child, you get to do it. And if you want to listen to somebody walk you through your thought processes, fantastic. But at some point you get to say, hey folks, this is our decision. It's my decision to make. I appreciate your feedback. Now what I need from you is to get behind me and get on board and help me in the next step. You're ethically obligated. I'm gonna say this. As much as I believe in our program, as much as I believe in my job and what I do, I will tell you, it is in our ethical codes that we are not to take responsibility for major life decisions in our clients' lives. Divorce, getting married, I think sending your child away or bringing them home would fit into that. I mean, we can make recommendations on what we think will be helpful, but, but to assume responsibility for that is unethical. I'm a little bit passionate about it because I've been bullied as a father. I've had people fight with me when I was ready to make a decision all over the place for years. And I thought to myself, this happened with my firstborn child who's now 28. It's happened with my 19-year-old. It's happened with my 13-year-old. When therapists get into my business and start telling me what I should do, I'm learning now. After years and decades of training, I'm learning now that they're not they're not engaging in a process that I can respect. Again, if I'm trying to go through a thought process, a decision-making process, yes, I'm going to use them. But I've had to say to therapists, you need to stop. It's inappropriate what you're doing. I've made my decision. And you can help me process it. Or you can stand there self-righteous like you have all the answers. And you can tell me what to do. But you don't have any guarantees either. And by the way, if you know the cure, fix them. If I, with a PhD and 25 years of experience in doing this work, am vulnerable and susceptible to the abuse that therapists and self-help and, 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 and people in this field do to parents, if I'm vulnerable to that, I got to know that you guys are. One of my... One of the things I'm most proud of with this podcast for, for our parents and for anybody who listens to it is to empower you to take back your life. And if you have a therapist that's rigid in the ways that I'm describing, you have a bad therapist. If you have a therapist that can't change gears and go along with you and provide you support, you have a bad therapist. In the, in the, Jamie does a very good job. Jamie Gill does a very good job in the forward of the book, my book, The Audacity to Be Used. She says, if the therapist knows what you should do, find a new therapist. And again, we do guide you in treatment with your child. We do give you suggestions. We do bring you along. I do it on this podcast, but there's a line that gets crossed where it's too much and it's inappropriate. And I want to empower you to stand up in those moments. Next question. Somebody writes, our son went to Evoke and then he's been in aftercare for 10 months. He's been home for nine months now. One of the struggles he has is he shared how hard it is to apply many of the skills he has learned 
because the majority of his peers are so much less aware and lack the skills he's gained through his journey thus far. So he feels very much alone at times. What are your thoughts on how to best support him in addition to validating his feelings and making space for his for him to share his feelings? I mean, that's actually a really good sign. And I, I, I'm inclined to just believe him. You know, the more work that I do, I don't have more peers. I was talking to this, I was getting interviewed today and I was talking about it in a slightly different context, but how many, you know this, if you get yourself into Al-Anon or you spend a, years in therapy, you know that you can't talk to the old people. I would say relate to your son. If this work has changed you, and I hope it has for the better, then you know going back to those old dinner parties and some of your, even your family, your family of origin, knowing that life is about, is a constant kind of growth process and we have to let old relationships die and fade sometimes and old people. It's a hard one. So so in addition to validating him, I would relate to him if you can. The parents who do the work at Evoke or do the work through the books, the podcasts that I do, who reach out to me, they will tell you it takes effort to find their tribe. And the people that you're hanging around when you're at a lower level of consciousness, they won't be your people when your consciousness is raised. So what he's sharing with you is the best sign of all. And what you can do is you can be connected with them. See, in the end, we don't need everybody to understand this, but we do need one person to understand this. We need at least one. And the more work you do, and I believe your son, I've heard it before, I've seen it before, the more work you do, the fewer your options because most people don't keep working. Most people look at therapy as crisis management and problem solving. They don't know what we're talking about in teaching and evoke. That yes, the crisis is, is the invitation into the work, right? It's the invitation into the, uh, the, the heroic journey. That the, the problem or the issue that presents itself is the ticket that gets you into this, this podcast and this work. But what most people on earth don't know is that this is a lifelong process. My therapist is in her late 80s. I said to her last week, I said, you're still an incredible student. You're still seeking out and reading and writing new books. She's still doing therapy with me and others. And she looks at me like it's, it's the simplest thing in the world and says, of course, I don't want to be dead yet. If Evoke Therapy programs works, any of it, the wilderness program, the intensive program, if it works, you'll get clear on your project. There'll be some relief from your suffering. You won't feel alone, but more than anything else, you'll keep doing the work and you'll find people or a person that can help you do it. So I love what your son is saying. Tell him I know that I, I probably share a similar sentiment, literally. I share a similar sentiment to my therapist at least once a month. At least once a month. 
All right, if there are any other questions, you can load them. I'll go over these upcoming slides and then you can submit any questions. My books, The Audacity to Be You and The Journey of the Rogue Parent are available on Amazon and Audible. I read the, the, the audio version of The Audacity to Be You. We have support groups for families. Current families or alumni families can come to our support groups. The next one is September 23rd. That's tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. We also have a, a once a month for alumni only support groups for our wilderness program. September 28th at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time is the next one available for that. And then if you're an intensive alumni, you can go to both if you're both. But in, for intensive alumni, the next one is October 12th at 6 p.m. Contact Malia at evoketherapy.com for more information or to register. If you want to do a deep dive in your own work, finding you is the best thing you can do for you, for your child. I, I believe in these things, these intensives. The, the time and the money spent is the best time and money spent that I can think of. It is a, a springboard or an accelerator into your work. The next one is October 20th through 24th. Online, we also do it online November 5th through 7th, half the time and half the cost. So the online one is in two parts. And then for our returning to you, we have one spot left. Somebody dropped out. So if you've been to off of finding you and you want to do a, a returning to you, I'm actually running that along with Travis Schlegel, Schlegel, our, our, our clinical director. So the, the one October 6th through 10th has one spot available. So go to our website or contact intensives at evoketherapy.com for more information. If you want an attachment based, if you want a therapist who thinks the way that I do, an attachment based therapist, um, we have therapists that provide coaching for individuals at any stage of the process, at any age, for any issue. Contact coaching at evoketherapy.com to get signed up with one of our coaches who can do virtual virtual coaching anywhere in the country. We have pursuits trips for young adults and families, Think Therapy Light, customized programming, adventure. If you want some time in between programs, this is a great opportunity to do it with some support, maybe at the end or maybe to revisit your work. We ask all current families to go to six, any combination of these 12, 12 step support groups, any combination. We ask you for six, alanon.org, coda.org, familiesanonymous.org, adultchildren.org or refugerecovery.org. NAMI.org is also a great place to go. By the way, I didn't mention this earlier, but we also are hiring right now. So if you know a therapist or you are a therapist who might be interested in this work, have them contact brad at evoketherapy.com. And we're also looking for leadership in our clinical departments. So please reach out to me, brad at evoketherapy.com, if you're interested in a clinical position. All of these broadcasts are available on your favorite podcast app. Just search Finding You and Evoke Therapy Podcast or go to soundcloud.com and you can listen there by, by searching Finding You and Evoke Therapy Podcast. On Twitter and Instagram, Instagram, you can find us by using the handles at Evoke Therapy or at Dr. Brad Reedy. And also you can find us on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives. On Facebook, you can find us by searching either Evoke Therapy Programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And then Malia does a wonderful job of curating our blog. So you can find new content each week on our blog on our website. There also are, there's a free chapter to my book and a, and a free audio uh, audio chapter to my book if you're interested in that on our on our homepage. my next broadcast will be a hopefully a very popular broadcast september 27th at 6 30 p.m i'll be talking about enmeshment 6 30 p.m mountain time all right looks like that's all the questions i have for today malia i think i hope this is a helpful point of contact thank you for and on behalf of your loved ones for being willing to do your work 
I hope this is helpful. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Man.